You can stay. I mean, yeah. yeah. All right. And I also want to thank, um, had a good crew here earlier this morning. Oh, sweeping the drive and sweeping um, the, uh, not sweeping, shoveling this morning, our, uh, our walkways in, making it easier for us to get in the building this morning. So I appreciate everybody that, that lent a hand with all of that. How many of you are making New Year's resolutions? A few of you? None of you want to admit it. Uh, how many of you have already broken your New Year's resolution? Maybe a few of you? I don't know. Uh, you've probably noticed that most New Year's resolutions uh, have to do with the care of our physical bodies, what shape we're in, uh, what shape we're not in. Uh, we go through this season from, you know, late November till the New Year's Day where we just kind of eat everything that comes in front of our face, and so by this time we're ready to do something uh, about the condition of our body. But I want to tell you this morning, your body is an amazing thing. I'm going to give you some stats, and you're just going to be blown away about how awesome your body is, and you might even reconsider your resolution. Um, during your lifetime, and by the way, these have nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to share them because I thought they were good. During your lifetime, you will produce enough saliva to fill two swimming pools. I'm not telling you, you, have to, you don't have to swim in it. You'll just produce a lot of saliva. The acid in your stomach is strong enough to dissolve razor blades. Again, I'm not telling you to do that, but that's pretty impressive. Your body puts off enough heat to bring a half a gallon of water to a boil every 30 minutes. I have no idea how that's measured, but pretty cool. Everyone has a unique smell or odor, except for identical twins, which smell the same. So, and you guys do. When you get funky, you kind of smell the same. Um, speaking of smell, your nose can remember 50,000 distinct scents which it's amazing how those scents are often related to memories or different things that uh, stay somewhere there in your head. Your lungs contain about 1,500 miles of airways. That's mind-boggling. Your human body has 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Nerve impulses travel through your body at 170 miles per hour. So your whole life you thought you were slow. No. You got some serious action there, 170 miles per hour. 300 million cells die in your body every minute. So in this 30-minute in this sermon, 9 trillion cells will die in each of our bodies. You know, we have, that, that's enough to do a funeral in here. That's a lot of death. So no matter what your opinion of what needs to happen in your body these next few months, your body's an amazing thing. Give yourself some credit. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So I'm kind of letting you off the hook this morning. Um, today, though, we actually are going to embark on a journey through the gospel of Mark. Uh, this study will carry us through the bulk of 2014, uh, and that's if we really keep up the pace, if we really stay after it, we might get through this book at the end of this year. And I've wanted to preach through this book for years. I love the Gospel of Mark, and I actually thought that we would do it last fall after our study of Jonah. But at that time, I, felt really, I, excuse me, I really felt compelled to do a series on the church. That was our imperfect series. Uh, so I pushed Mark back a few months. I thought that we'd pick it up in November. But then, in November, we were coming up on Advent, and since Mark has no birth narrative or prologue, we had to have a little redirect there. And so now finally, five or six months after the fact, months later, we come to the book of Mark. And today, I'm just going to do an introduction to the book. I'm going to give you some facts and details surrounding it. And then next week, we'll really start moving through the text. But I want to launch into Mark this morning by reading the first verse from the first chapter. It's a simple sentence. You can read it with me. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mark writes this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm not necessarily going to pull that verse apart this morning, but I do want you to see that the point of chapter 1, verse 1, is the whole point behind our study of this book. The point of that verse, and therefore the point of our whole study of Mark is Jesus Christ. The book of Mark is all about Jesus Christ. And I don't need to confine that statement to this book of the Bible. 
the entire Bible points us to Jesus Christ. Human history is all about Jesus Christ. Your life and mine is to be all about Jesus Christ. Beauty, truth, meaning, these things are all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And it takes some people a lifetime to figure that out. And there are also plenty of people who never figure that out, that it's all about Jesus Christ. And maybe you don't think about Christianity in terms of a person. Maybe you think uh, of it in terms of morality or ethics or responsibility. If so, you need this study because the heart of Christianity is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Look at all the other religions. Think of Hinduism. The heart of Hinduism is the non-material self. This is what leads to their thinking on reincarnation and all sorts of other stuff. The heart of Buddhism is the inward journey toward enlightenment. The heart of Islam is the Quran. But the heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ. So Christianity is not a set of rules. It's not even a certain ethical standard. It's not about practices or rituals that you have to do. Christianity centers on who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. Notice again the opening words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is a word that means good news. Therefore, a religious message which keeps telling us to do this and to do this and to do this, that's not good news, is it? No. Christianity isn't about do's and don'ts. Some of you were raised that way. Some of you may still live that way. But I hope and pray as we look at the person and the work of Christ in the book of Mark that you will be liberated from a religion of performance. Liberated from the shame of your sorry performance or liberated from the pride of what you see as your impeccable performance. That you are set free because with Christianity you are offered his performance, his perfect performance. You don't have to depend on your own striving. You get to rest in his striving, in Jesus Christ. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. It's not a set of ceremonies. We do baptism. We do the Lord's Supper. These are important things. We make a habit of meeting together. We do these things because the Savior commanded us to do them. But they cannot be the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is Christ. Christianity is a person called Jesus. One of my favorite illustrations of this is found in a sermon preached by an English pastor, a guy named Dick Lucas. And he concocted an imaginary conversation between a first century Christian and her neighbor who was to be Roman. And he told it this way, Ah, the Roman neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, says the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple. But where do your priests do their work? We don't have priests, replied the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? sputters the pagan neighbor. The answer is it's no kind of religion at all. It's Jesus Christ. It's no religion at all. What is it then? It's a saving trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've been here at Enid and B Church in the past year or so, you know that there's going to be one thing we talk a lot about, and it is the gospel. The gospel is what I just described. The atoning, justifying work of Christ on the cross. A work validated through his resurrection and then apprehended by you and I through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Our new members that we installed in the first service, they testified to their trust in Christ, to their trust in him alone for salvation from sin. Each of them shared the gospel in their testimony. So if that's the gospel, what then is a gospel? You know, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark. What are these gospels? If the gospel is what we believe, what then are these books of the Bible we call gospel? Many people, I think, would answer that question in one of two ways. Some would say that a New Testament gospel is a biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So it's, it's a biography. 
And others will say that the Gospels are just a collection of stories about Jesus, just a book of legend or, uh, legends or tales or whatever. And I can see why people would have those ideas about a Gospel, but neither answer is really correct. Although the four Gospels do give us biographical details about Jesus, they were not written for the purpose of giving us a whole life account of Jesus. You know, the guy lived 30 to 35 years. The biblical record gives us the smallest fraction of that. So if it's a a biography, it's a really, really bad one. We don't get much. But also, since Gospels do contain historical accounts, they're not mere stories. They're not mere legends about Jesus. Tales don't place a person at a point in history the way the Gospels manage to do. So what is a gospel? Not a biography, it's not a legend. These books were preaching materials. A gospel was designed to tell the story of God's saving action in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were called gospels because they gave the substance of the gospel, which Paul calls in Romans, God's power to salvation to all who believe. Thus, a gospel such as Mark was written to bear witness to God's people about the ministry of Jesus. Not merely as a biography, not a cold historical record, not a theological treatise, a proclamation about Jesus. Mark's gospel is essentially proclamation. But that does not mean that Mark is not interested in history and with getting the facts straight. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's just that Mark's proclamation has a bigger point, a much bigger point, which involves telling the readers or the hearers this accurate information about the things that Jesus said and the things that he did to demonstrate that point read there in that first verse that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Since Jesus actually said and actually did the things he reported to have said, Mark's purpose is greatly enhanced. His purpose to proclaim the good news about Jesus is to do that in such a way as to summon those who hear this message for them to respond in faith and repentance. What Mark tells us about Jesus is designed to create faith in the hearts of those who hear his message. I'll say it one other way. A gospel is a carefully crafted witness of what Jesus said and did did, so that those who read or hear his words are summoned to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I say all that because it's interesting to notice in verse 1, we see this book being called a gospel. The original title or heading of this book is simply according to Mark, kata markon in Greek. But because of verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, somewhere along the way, it was, giving the t- it was given the title of gospel. Not a biography, not folk tales or a legend, but good news. And the reason the word gospel, or evangelion in Greek, the reason that word is used here is very much connected to the audience of the book. The book was written by Mark from Rome, largely for Gentiles or for Romans. And the Romans had a long history of attaching the word gospel to announcements concerning their king, their emperor. They actually deified the Caesars. They thought them to be gods. So the birthday of a Caesar or the ascension of an emperor to power would come with an empire-wide proclamation. It would come with tidings. It would come with an evangelion. It would come with a gospel, a proclamation that was to be celebrated. The Romans saw these events of their emperors as festival occasions for the whole world to recognize. Here's a Roman inscription from 9 B.C. It's in relation to Augustus, Augustus Caesar. It says, Augustus, being filled with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending him, as it were, a deliverer for us and for those who would come after us, to make war cease, to create order everywhere, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel that has come to men through him. That's a Roman inscription announcing good news to the empire. 
So Mark is making a similar announcement in the shadow of the Roman Empire. The empire that announced their kings with a gospel. Mark is announcing the king of kings with a gospel. He's giving us, in this book, a proclamation concerning Christ's life, and he's telling us to celebrate. Celebrate the king who has come. Celebrate the king whose kingdom is at hand. And that's what Christians have done for centuries, celebrated their coming king. So with that, let's do a quick review, or overview, I should say, of Mark, and we'll do it by examining more closely just the gospel's author. The gospel's author is John Mark. We'll look at the man, his method, and his message. So John Mark, the man, here's a little bit about his background. John was his Jewish name. John simply means the grace of God. Mark was a Roman name, which was a bit like a surname or a last name, and it means the hammer. <laughs> and sometimes God's grace comes like a hammer, doesn't it? I like that name, John Mark. In the New Testament, he's referred to as both Mark and John Mark, and I think one time he's referred to just as John. And we found out, <clears throat> excuse me, we find out early in the book of Acts, or somewhat early, about chapter 12, that he was the son of a wealthy woman who owned a home in Jerusalem. Chapter 12 and verse 12 of Acts shows that. You might remember Peter, he was miraculously released from prison. It was, he was released by an angel. And it was then to this home, to, to Mary of Jerusalem, to John Mark's mother's home, that he went. And when he, verse 12, had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Peter, upon his release, knew which house to go to. It was the house where he knew believers would be, at least some of them in Jerusalem would be, because it was there that they had been meeting. We also know from Colossians chapter 4 that John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. Both Bar Barnabas and Mark had accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. We can read about that in Acts chapter 12. But by the time we get into Acts chapter 13, we read in chapter 13, verse 13, that Mark abandoned the Apostle Paul. He decided that he had had enough. He was returning home for whatever reason. We don't have the reason. It's not given for us. But Paul was so unhappy with Mark that he refused to take him on his second missionary journey. His cousin Barnabas had suggested they take him, and, and this suggestion actually started a fight between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And it ended with Paul and Silas going one way, and Barnabas and John Mark going another way. So Mark caused the split between Paul and Barnabas. And after that event, we lose sight of John Mark. We lose sight of him for probably six or seven years as the book of Acts unfolds. And then we find later, the two of them, Paul and Mark, they reconcile. Something happened in the life of John Mark to make him just a mighty servant of God. Because when the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome, we read that there was some kind of reconciliation Mark actually served as, the, as Paul's aide. He became a delegate to him in Rome. We, we see that and read about it in Philemon 24. We also see it in Colossians 4.10. And later on, in, in, in one of the last books Paul would write in, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul would ask Timothy to bring John Mark back to Rome because he was useful in Paul's service to the Lord. Look, we, we can see it, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. We'll read it all the way to verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, Do thy diligence, do your diligence to come shortly to me. For Demas has forsaken me. He's loved this present world and has departed unto Thessalonica. Uh, Gresham's to Galatia. Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So again, Paul's saying to Timothy, Take Mark, that is John Mark, and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So through the New Testament, we see Mark go from liability, in Paul's mind, to this tremendous asset, to this man that he needed to be by his side. This is probably because Mark, for the bulk of his career, ministered alongside Peter. It's confirmed that Mark was Peter's translator, or his secretary. It means he, he was likely his scribe. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter, imprisoned in Rome, refers to Mark as a son to him. So 
he's a man valuable to Paul, and he's valuable to Barnabas, his cousin, and he's valuable to Peter. That's the man John Mark, which leads us to his method. What was his method? What we have in Mark's gospel is essentially a gospel of Peter. Now, Peter Peter didn't, didn't write a gospel account. He didn't need to write a gospel account. He had Mark. As Mark accompanied Peter throughout his ministry, he'd heard him preach countless sermons. He heard him share the story of Christ to hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And so Mark essentially writes a gospel of Peter. And we see this flesh out in Mark's gospel itself. Proportionately, Mark mentions Peter significantly more than all the other gospels. If you go through the book of Mark, you'll see that basically nothing happens that Peter is not present for. The book is an eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter, as he time and time again throughout Israel and Asia Minor and the whole Roman Empire told of his experience with Jesus. And one example of Peter preaching that really connects directly with how the book of Mark is shaped is Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 is probably my favorite story in the book of Acts. It's when Peter is called to the home of Cornelius, the Gentile. He's a Roman soldier. And it's clear that God has orchestrated this whole meeting through a dream and through all sorts of providential events. And so Peter shows up to the home of Cornelius and all who are gathered there, and he begins to preach a sermon. It's in Acts 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. And Peter says to this gathered uh, throng of Romans and these soldiers that I'm sure are contemporaries of Cornelius, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then this great revival breaks out amongst the Gentiles. So that sermon recorded by Luke in Acts 10 is basically an outline of Mark's gospel. It takes the exact same shape. You might expand verse 38 as it relates to that sermon, and that's where a a great deal of Mark's content comes in. But that sermon takes the shape of Mark's gospel. If that was the basic shape of Peter's message concerning Jesus, then what Mark recorded is, is really perfectly in step with. But it's the fact that Mark's gospel reads like a sermon, that it reads like proclamation. This is what makes it such an exciting gospel to me. The majority of the the people in the first century didn't read. So they wouldn't have read this gospel. It was likely read to them. It was delivered audibly. This is why when you read it, it doesn't read like dry history. It is written almost entirely in the present tense, which is a feature that that sort of places you in the scenes as they're being described. It's told with a really quick pace. The word immediately or straight away, it's used 42 times in the book. Mark moves quickly from scene to scene to scene. He's portraying Jesus as a man of action. He's decisively acting and serving and healing and calling, and he's immediately going here and immediately going there. There's very little of Jesus' teaching in the book of Mark. And this is a feature that helps make the book so brief, which is actually one of the reasons I chose to teach from it, because it's the shortest gospel. It's five chapters shorter than John. John has really long chapters. It's eight chapters shorter than Luke. It's 12 chapters shorter than Matthew. And it's widely agreed that Mark was most likely the first gospel account written, probably in the range of the late 50s to mid-60s A.D., somewhere in there. Mark was written about the same time as Peter's execution in Rome. So it corresponds there as sort of a legacy of Peter. 
And if you hold to Mark as the first gospel account written, this is referred to as Mark in priority. Mark in priority. And it's because, and it's important because Mark in priority says that it was Mark's gospel that helped shape the gospels of Matthew and Luke. John is unique. About 90% of John is unique to John, but not Matthew and Luke. With Mark, Matthew, and Luke, we have what's called the synoptic gospels, which means they, are, they share most of their material. And I think it makes total sense for the first gospel written to be the shortest, because later accounts, they're not going to scale down and make shorter this accurate message of Jesus Christ. No, they're going to correspond with Mark's account, and then they're going to seek to round it out, and they're going to provide explanations and give a little commentary and a little extra teaching to what Mark has already laid down, and that's exactly what has occurred. So that's the, the method. Now his message. What is the message, as we wrap up, um, of the book of Mark? You know, of course, that there are factors given to each gospel to give them a unique message. Matthew's gospel sets Jesus forth as a Jewish messiah. Matthew writes to a largely Jewish audience, therefore Jesus is clearly proclaimed as the Jewish Messiah. So in it, there is uh, just a lot of Jewish customs and language. Matthew's gospel is, is Jewish, it's a very Jewish account. Luke's gospel sets forth Jesus as the son of man. Luke had a Greek audience. So therefore, there's a focus on the humanity of the Lord Jesus. The Greeks would have really struggled connecting the, the human and the divine. So Luke seeks to give us a Jesus that is 100% divine, but also 100% man. John's gospel sets forth how Jesus is the Son of God. John's audience is more universal. He wrote later, about 90 AD. And his burden is to show the divine Christ. The, the, the eternally established nature of Christ. Him as the only begotten Son of God. We saw that last month in our study of John chapter 1. But Mark's gospel, written to a Gentile, largely Roman audience, sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ as servant king. Servant king. The Gentile world, the Roman world, knew what a king was. Caesar, an emperor. They paid the taxes. Using the money with the emperor's image on it, they knew what it meant to be ruled by a king. But a servant king. One that would come not to reign, not to take from the people, but to suffer in his, and, and to give his life for the people. This was entirely foreign to them. And that's the message of Mark. It's that of a servant king. And you can actually divide the book of Mark into two sections, chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 16. 1 through 8 it, it establishes the authority, the kingly authority of Jesus. In every realm, we have stories and accounts of Jesus laying out his authority. And then in, in chapter 8, verse 37, a very important question is asked by Jesus to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And at that point, from, from chapters 9 to 16, we move from the, the, the authoritative king to the suffering servant. The attention of the book is now directed squarely to the cross. Squarely to the cross. That this servant king turns into suffering servant. And that's a really important message in the day and age that this book was written. Because who had risen to power? What, what Caesar was in place? It was the diabolical Nero. And with Nero came a great deal of suffering amongst Christians. Death and persecution and execution. In the church, Nero's plan was to try to blot it out. And so the church being under all these persecutions and, and enduring intense suffering, they needed to see their Savior as one who suffered in the very same servant king, suffering servant. Our Kent Hughes, I'll just conclude with this, uh, Kent Hughes, he's the, he's the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He writes an excellent commentary on the book of Mark, and he tells a story about one of the world-renowned scholars in the area of, of the classics. 
His name was Dr. E.V. Ryu. And years ago, uh, Ryu had completed a translation of Homer uh, from Greek into uh, modern English for, for, for Penguin Classics. And, and Ryu was an agnostic, a renowned agnostic. And then toward the end of his life, toward the end of his career, this renowned agnostic was asked by Penguin to translate from Greek into English, and I think French as well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when Ryu's son heard about this, he was heard to say, he said, it will be interesting to see what Father will make of the four Gospels. Then he paused. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. And he didn't have to wonder very long, because within a year's time, Evie Ryu, the lifelong agnostic, responded to the Gospels. As he translated them, he faced Christ, and he became a Christian. His story is a testimony to the transforming power of God's word, the transforming power of being confronted with Jesus Christ. So as we open up Mark's gospel, as we seek to do a fairly in-depth study, as we want to see the servant king Jesus, the question is not what will you make of Mark's gospel as we study it, or not what will I make of it as I put talks together, but what will Mark's gospel make of you? What will it make of you? Will you come, and will you hear the word, and will you walk out unaffected? Or will you dig in and entrench yourself in the truths that are presented here? And maybe will you encounter afresh the Christ of the Gospels, the servant king, the suffering servant, the God-man who died for you and I? That's my hope and my prayer. That, that, that through looking at this Gospel, that it will make something of us, that it will do something among us, that it won't just be a study, but the, that the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, it will be sensed and felt and recognized in this place as we look hard and close at who Jesus is as he's revealed uh, in this amazing book. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. It's rich, and it's full, and it's powerful, and we need it. We need Jesus, and so we need this, these revealed ideas about him. And they're not just biographical details, God. They are things that point us to his majesty and his greatness and his authority and his power to save us. So, Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to feel. If there's anyone in here, God, that has never trusted, put their faith in Jesus Christ, that maybe through just thinking briefly about some of these points this morning, they would be a step closer to putting their faith in you. And maybe as they continue to come, as we dig in and look closely at the Lord Jesus, each of us in this room, we will not be able to, to do anything but throw ourselves down again at his feet in worship and in submission and in joy as we celebrate uh, this great King, King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate that. Uh, I look forward to this journey through um, the book of Mark in 2014. Uh, and I just invite you guys to pray for Pastor Jay as he faithfully uh, serves us and as he faithfully prepares um, to deliver messages week after week. Um, God is going to do some great things this year, and he will be 100% faithful, just like he always has been. And um, so uh, I invite you to do that. Just a reminder that Wednesday ministry uh, kind of gets fired back up this this Wednesday evening. And just one more thing before you go. I know some of you had a favorite team win, and some of you had a favorite team lose this last week, and some of you don't care. Um, uh, and for those of you whose team did not come out on top, I do feel your pain, and I was rooting for those pokes, okay? I really was. And I just want you to know that I'm here for you if you need a shoulder to cry on. In fact, I even brought some Kleenexes today if you want to come up and, and I'll let you have a Kleenex here. And um, So God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you later.
Lifted high, we lift the cross. Lifted high, lifted high, we lift the cross. Lifted high, lifted high, we lift the cross. Lifted high, lifted high, we lift the cross. Lifted high. Thank you.